Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Matthew Peterson of Peterson Investment Funds. He's got an absolutely fascinating implementation of value using options, typically option sales. He calls it structured value. We'll be coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. When did we first meet? I think I might have met you at a, at a idea dinner hosted I by Alex like Rubel Carver. Is, was that... Was that it? Or when he was, was a value Bank investor. Or, yeah, was it maybe... Uh, Through Ben Clayman, like possible too. 2011 or probably? Something like uh, that. Yeah, so a decade. Let's say a decade. Yeah. And so honestly, that night when I heard you describe your investment philosophy and mm -hmm. your, your strategy, I was like, this, this is amazing. This is genius. So let's just, just give us a... Uh, what, describe your 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 strategy. How do you implement your strategy? Okay, well, let's start. So fundamentally, we're a long-term value-based fund. So uh, the all of the standard protocols you would affiliate with a value fund, you would affiliate with our fund. Um, and but what I think you're referring to is the the small nuance where we sort of buy and sell in a little bit of a different manner than right. um, I think most traditional funds. And it's an enormous advantage. I spent uh, a lot of years only talking about it very privately because I was afraid that if I went public, uh, it would get exploited. But what I've discovered actually is that very few people, it's people are reluctant to sort of put it into practice. And uh, there's a couple extra steps, but uh, out of all your listeners, there might be a few that go out and try it. And uh, there'll be a few that stick with it. So uh, what we do essentially is once we discover and we can walk through process or whatever, but once we identify a company that we'd like to own and we have a very concentrated portfolio, so we're talking like, you know, maybe 10 positions is a good amount. Um, but when we find a new position we'd like to buy, um, I want to figure out the best way to acquire that exposure. And, um, and so what I, uh, what I discovered years ago on wall street, uh, is that by basically selling a put, a lot of times in the value space, when you wanna buy a firm, it's fallen out of favor, maybe there's been an event that's caused the price to decline into a, a, a place where you'd like to own it. And that, and so oftentimes there's high volatility. Um, and high volatility uh, impacts the prices of um, put and call contracts. And so, you know, most people are somewhat familiar with puts and calls, you know, a call allows you to buy the shares, a put usually allows you to sell the shares, but if you invert it and you basically, instead of being the buyer of a put, you become the seller of a put, uh, people are paying you to protect their shares. And should the shares decline in price further, they then put them to you into your portfolio. And so it's just one extra step. So instead of going to the you know New York Stock Exchange and buying, say, uh, shares of whatever we'd want to own, unfortunately, I didn't check recently, but you know Tesla is always a good example because it's so volatile. Uh, but instead of buying, uh, tell me, do you know what the price is today of, of say Tesla? I don't. Uh, okay, let's is say four hundred bucks. Yeah, like, let's say it's four hundred. Uh, you could likely go into 
through the Chicago Board of Exchange, instead of paying 400 for it, commit to buying it for 400 over a period of nine months or so, and someone's likely to pay you about $100 for that commitment. And so what happens uh, in, in the scenario is, uh, instead of buying through the New York Stock Exchange, we go through the Chicago Board of Exchange, we write these put contracts, we're committed to buying the shares, uh, they are priced basically uh, through quantitative assessment. There's no qualitative assessment that's underlying the Black-Scholes model, for example. And, uh, and so we pick up a large premium as a, and we use this as a tool to own the equity. So we're not just trying to pick up premium, we're not you know, picking up uh, nickels in front of a, a you know, crusher or whatever the, the analogy is, but we're basically looking for an opportunity to buy shares and looking to move in as, um, as cost effectively as possible and as cheaply as possible. And so this allows us, by writing these puts, it allows us to pick up a premium before we buy. And then when we do buy, we're paying far less than the market price for the securities. And that's a huge advantage because it lowers the denominator throughout the entire holding process then of, uh, of the position. So when you, when you, let's, let's look at one of those transactions. So when you sell a put to get into a position, you have the same downside profile as someone who has bought the stock. So if you're a value guy and you're already prepared to underwrite this particular stock, you're already prepared to accept the downside of something that you're buying into. What you're saying is by selling a put and capturing hot, a lot of volatility, you're in fact getting a lower purchase price in the event that the stock falls to that point. And if it, even if it falls to your strike, you've got some premium embedded in it that you've, in, you've paid an even lower price than that. So, so really the risk for you is that it's sort of a, it's a sin of omission where it's something that you want to own and it never falls to the price where you, you in fact get it put to you and you get to buy it. Is that, is that fair? That's, that's absolutely fair. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and that is very much the way I, I look at it. So if we took a really basic example like, uh, like Berkshire Hathaway, which everybody's very familiar with, and it's not the best example, by the way, because volatility is not usually very high with Berkshire. But, uh, but we can talk to it easily and all the nuances. But uh, there's basically four outcomes uh, to any scenario. So once you sell the put, the worst outcome, of course, is that the shares go to zero. And like you said, it's the same position you'd have if you were a value fund owning the securities. Of course, it would be terrible if it went to zero. So Berkshire B shares, I think, are around 210 or so. If that went all the way to zero and you hadn't sold a put, you would lose $210. Maybe if you sold the put with a strike of 200 and you picked up $20, you'd lose 180. So it protects right. you a, a little bit. The second scenario is the ideal scenario, and that is where you want to own uh, a security for the long term. You're using this put process, this the put, uh, cash secured put right, as a tool to own the shares. The shares dip a bit, they get put into your portfolio, you've captured the premium, and now you own Berkshire at 180, the shares maybe went into the 190s, and now they're at 300, and you're looking and feeling great. Uh, the third scenario is also reasonably attractive. Uh, basically, the shares don't decline much. Maybe they're flat, maybe they're up just a little bit, but you've picked up enough premium that you've sort of offset uh, the waiting period, right? So maybe the securities, probably there's, they may still be very attractive, maybe more attractive. Uh, but once these contracts expire, you obviously keep the, 
the premium and, uh, and you just go about your business. So you could resell more contracts. So the third scenario is the shares stay flat or go up a little bit. And then the fourth scenario that you described is the, the worst scenario, uh, where although, you know, it, it feels painful for us, uh, but it's not like LPs or other folks complain because they don't, you know, they look at it, it, it looks to, like the third scenario to them. So the shares rally, you miss some multi-bagger position, and, uh, and you're back to the drawing board and you have to find a brand new idea and you were totally right, uh, but you missed it. And so that is, that is the risk. That is the real risk. Do you buy the equity at the same time to sort of mitigate that risk a little? Uh, there's a few, these, these are great questions. We can go into depth on some of this. There's a few things that you can do. And in fact, uh, my approach has evolved a bit over time, naturally, as you get more experience. And, uh, and so, so typically let me, let me put it, this framework around it. So we're such long-term holders that we may, it wouldn't, uh, I, like I, I like looking at things that, a decade out or so. And I would love to own compounders that continue to grow at high double digit rates for that a period of time. I'm very happy to hone uh, securities that way. So what that means is uh, initially, typically initially, I don't, to answer your question. I just sell the puts. And, uh, and that's usually the approach that we take. Sometimes if it looks like uh, Sometimes if it looks like maybe there's a lot of operating leverage and it's really going to move quickly or there's some sort of catalyst that's changing things fast, uh, you can, and this is, this is a step further, so I don't want to really confuse your audience, but uh, I have and you can take a small piece of that premium and buy some out-of-the-money calls uh, so that if it truly rallies, you do capture that upside. So it actually becomes in a way like a free call option right. uh, if it's if it's done uh, well. So so I, I tend to do that more than buying the shares. But ultimately what happens is you own the stock. And once you own the shares, it becomes quite interesting what you can do because you become so familiar with the security. When it dips, you can buy sell some, some puts. Um, if it rallies, you might be able to sell some calls. Uh, and if those have the same expiration dates, uh, only one, the price can only be in one place on that final date. And so you can start kind of capturing multiple premiums around a, a long-term position that you hold. The, uh, Greenblatt yellow book, how to be a stock market genius. He includes in there this discussion of buying leaps where he says, if you've got a position where the downside could be unlimited, it might be a zero but you like the risk reward of the position that you could then go and buy a leap, which is a long-term equity uh, anticipation security, something like that. Yes, that's right. something yeah. something odd. Basically, it's the just the definition a... of a leap is simply a, a, a an option that's out longer than a, a year. Yeah, I that's what I understand too. So you can buy a call in something that expires in twenty twenty. There's, so these, I think they're currently traded now for a lot of stocks, 2022 January or 2023 January might even be available at the moment. Do you ever do any core buying of that kind of nature? So it's a really good question. And these are, these are all great strategies. And given the, given the exact scenario that you're mentioning, 
it's something we would consider. But uh, at the at the sort of fundamental level, what I'm really looking to do is so so. How can I say? You, you prefer so to be a vol seller than a vol buyer. Yeah, I, I I prefer cash coming in rather than cash yeah, going out. So anytime you buy a call, you are uh, you're at a risk of the timing being wrong. Right. And so that's that's what that's what's most challenging for me is that markets can be irrational, and if you happen to be in a recession or a pandemic or there's something going on and the prices aren't where they really rationally should be, you just automatically lose 100%. Right. So certainly, uh, if you took a basket, I, I can see a scenario where you have a basket of, of securities that might play out, and you can maybe call that one position, and it actually is 10 underlying securities, and maybe there's really asymmetric upside, uh, but it could be a zero you know, it might be a winning strategy. It's not something that we usually do. We are we are really focusing on capturing the long-term securities through the sale of these um, puts, and we just use it as an entry price. But other than that, it's it's pretty plain vanilla. So you tend to be a vol seller rather than a vol buyer. So let's talk about selling a position then. The reverse of selling a put is selling a call, which is then giving you the if the if you hold the underlying security and it gets to your price, then you become uh, that that's a way of exiting and capturing some of the volatility on the upside. Is that is that a strategy that you employ? Correct. That's that's exactly what what we do. So uh, so if if we had a hypothetical situation where there was a security that fell from 100 to 50, and we thought maybe the value was 200, and now it was so attractive that we wanted to make it a position. Instead of buying at 50, we might sell uh, puts at 50, pick up $10 in premium, and ultimately pay 40. Uh, as they start approaching 200, and this might be, this could be eight, 10 years later, they're approaching 200. Uh, we've now made 400% almost. And we then go to sell a call. That call then would pay us premium again. And by the way, even, you know, as the shares have, have risen, the call prices become more expensive. So we pick up quite a bit uh, of premium on that side as well. Uh, you know, I'm just hypothetically using 10% or so, but if the shares are appreciating and they're out 190, we might sell a $200 call strike, pick up $20 for that. And should they rise above 200 now, we've exited. And instead of going from 50 to 200, we've now gone from 40 to 220. And so it, it actually makes a meaningful difference to your IRR. Even over a 10-year time horizon, you end up adding multiple single-digit, but solid single-digit percents to your holding throughout a long period of time. So um, the, the positions that you are putting into the, the, the positions that you're writing the options on, if you're, if you're underwriting the downside in one of these, you have to be reasonably confident um, that this is a solid thing that you'd like to own. So what's the process? Just sort of ignoring the buy, the, the actual mechanics of buying and selling. Let's talk about yeah. the qualities of the businesses that you like to buy. Where, where, where are you focused and how do you think about them? Yeah, that's it's a really important question. And it's similar, again, to holding the underlying equity. Uh, so I have... Uh, I have a, a, a very straightforward framework that I that I just a little mental model in my own mind that I think uh, 
that I try to adhere to. And it's basically I'm looking for the greatest business models and the greatest management and then a fair price. And if you can sort of um, get into that intersection, uh, I think you have a, a pr uh, you increase your odds of weathering any unforeseen storm because you have a great business model and you have great managers and you've paid a, a good price. So that's something that is always very helpful. But, um, you know, I'm fundamentally looking at all of the same metrics that you're looking at. Uh, I, I, um, I think I, I am, I bend a little bit more to some qualitative aspects, but I'm also, you know, I want to make sure that the multiples are within proper ranges and I'm not overpaying, you know, some EVD EBITDA or whatever. I really care about cash flows. Uh, I used to, I'm evolving as I think everybody does. And I used to care or, or look carefully at, you know, book value and underlying assets. And now I'm questioning, you know, some of these, uh, legacy philosophies that I had because cash flows can come with no book value. And, uh, so cash flows are much more important to me, but what I'm really looking for is clear quality assets that sort of underwrite the firm in general, if that makes sense. And a lot of times what I really uh, appreciate finding, and oftentimes I think this is where deep value is, is I'm finding value off that are, it's somehow off the financial statements. So that could be super high quality management or some moats or brand that's not really apparent in the financials. Uh, because I find if it's really obvious in the financials, nobody's missed anything. And the markets are usually pretty efficient. So, um, but I, I do like some, I, I, I really try to find something that is sort of creating a floor to this position that we're, that we're looking at, for example. Right. So that makes Does that sense. Make sense? Yeah, so sure that as, as a volatility seller, you're, you're, and this is not, this is not something that's unusual to value guys, but you think about the downside a yes. lot. That's the, that's kind of the, the first step in the, in, in the process. Before I'm even looking at how volatile anything is, I'm identifying the position and there are, there are positions where the ball is insufficient to use the, I call it, I call it structured value. So the vol is insufficient to use any structured products because if you're going to sell a put and pick up a 12-month 5% IRR, it's right. just not worth doing it. Um, if the position has a possibility of doubling, uh, you're better off just buying the shares. Right. So, you know, I will I will take the more conventional approach if it's if it's a better approach. So let's just talk about, talk about a little bit about how you structure. So. Do you have a preference for? Are you looking out a quarter when you're selling an option? Or are you looking out a, a week? Or are you look, do you prefer to look out a year? Do you have some sort of IRR that you want to get over before you put it into the into the fund? So, so there's a couple of good good questions bundled in there. So, uh, quite often, uh, I, I I'm only hesitating because this is it, it's it's changing a it's changed a little bit in the current situation. But quite often, we're not only selling vol, we're also selling time. We're all you know we're writing all of the factors, and uh, and so I don't mind if we're getting sufficient IRR going out. I actually prefer to go out very far. Right. So I will write contracts in Jan 2023. Okay. And that will be. I will be so comfortable and confident that the firm 
you know, whatever catalysts or uncertainty exists today will be, uh, will be gone in 2023. And so, uh, so I like going out very far. The, the challenge is you do have to get sufficient IRR to make it worth your while. And so if I'm not, as a rule of thumb, if I'm not getting double digits IRR, then I will look at other ways. Um, now, the thing is to consider, uh, we actually, in reality, when we're building these out, we build them out over time, just like a, you know, somebody purchasing equity and buying a position in their portfolio might buy over time and they might have some strategy. They're going to own 2% and then 5% or whatever it's going to be. Uh, we do the same thing with our contracts. And so we can get different expiration dates and we can have different uh, strike prices. And so what that means is it ultimately looks like you can almost create a little matrix where you have uh, a bunch of different dates where things are, uh, sorry, a bunch of different prices where things are expiring. And what that means is you might sell some that are in the money and some that are out of the money and some that are at the money. And then you might do that for different strike prices. And then you might also continue to do that over time. And so you end up with this sort of uh, kind of a complex uh, matrix where some you buy and some you don't, but in all of them you pick up premium. And your ultimate position, you're basically, I'm building into the size that we'd like over time. And uh, and so, yeah, so we'll go out usually really far uh, when, we're, when we're doing something like that. That's interesting because I've noticed that you tend to get higher IRRs the, the nearer term that you're buying, but then there's you've also got to uh, balance that against the fact that you're typically collecting less premium when you're doing that too. So there's, I, I've found that the sweet spot is sometimes about a quarter or two out, that that's where yeah. the highest IRR plus sort of a reasonable amount of premium for the amount of notional risk that you're taking. Yeah, so the idea being, because uh, quite often the shares, you know, you've researched a great idea and then the shares appreciate a little bit and then you miss it. Uh, the challenge is, you then you have the ability to rewrite the the puts at that point, and then you can capture it again. But the world might be different. So uh, I I was writing uh, a few months ago that we are probably in the most uncertain time in the history of most of our lives. You know, we have political unrest, you know, pandemic, recession, uh, political uncertainty, etc. Aliens, don't forget the aliens. Aliens. If aliens showed up tomorrow, I think yeah, it's 2020. So. Uh, at this point, it seems, uh, I think it, it would be foolish to expect uh, volatility to be so high a year from now. Right. So to write a nine-month put and think, oh, I'm just going to capture the premium again if I don't buy it, the, the IRR might be significantly lower nine months from now on that same security with the same new duration. Uh, and so that's another sort of balance that you have to make. So you can write them short term and you do capture more, uh, but then the world can be different and it can, the ball can shrink. And, uh, and so you may have to just buy the shares. How do you think about sizing? Because you can clearly sell, you can get a very levered position by doing this, but then you also run the risk at some stage, worst case scenario, um, you know, Armageddon, every single one of your positions gets put to you. You need to be able to um, take them, or you're out of business. So, how do you how do you think about sizing? Are you are you do you think yeah. about this like do you think about the notional as you're putting it on, or is it right. how how do you do it? That's exactly how I do it. 
Um, so you, you calculate the notional. So um, you're basically looking at, you know, what's the strike price and how many, the quantity that we've sold and, you know, an option represents 100 shares of stock. So uh, you sort of look at the notional, you look at the strike price, and then you multiply times 100 and you say, okay, if I sell this amount, I'm going to be buying $5 million worth of XYZ shares. And, uh, you know, do, and you need to calculate where that fits into your portfolio. So uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So I run a really concentrated portfolio, probably more concentrated than most. I think four of our positions make about 65%. And, um, and so we're not, um, so, and they didn't always start that way, right? They grow into those sizes and things. But, um, the way that I typically move into securities, I start relatively small, um, with say a 2% position. And then I give myself a couple of more, um, chances to, to get it up to, 10%. So we'll go 2%, 5%, 10%. Are we talking notional or are we talking premium? Of notional. That's notional. notional. Okay. So I'm I'm calculating notional and I'm saying, you know, okay, let's take a, um, if for easy math, you have a hundred million dollars and you just say, okay, I want, I'm going to take notional of 2 million, then I'm going to take notional of five and then I'm going to take notional of 10. And then as things expire and unwind, um, we can we can add to that position and continue to put it to the proper size. So um, typically, that's how I think about pricing things. It's all based on notional, and everything's cash secured. So we're we're ready to buy. We're we're only selling contracts on positions that we want to own. Right, understood. the uh, The tax consequences for option selling. I think it's treated as ordinary income. Yeah. These are these are really good questions. Uh, great questions, in fact, and uh, because most people don't go into this depth, so <laughs> there's so many little nuances uh, that that uh, are worth exploring. So, yes, uh, they are treated as short term. However, when you buy the securities, uh, you there's no tax liability at that point because there's been no uh, realized gain. So they're just sort of embedded in the security. So you can delay that for quite some time. There's another interesting aspect that happens when you do the call selling for an exit. Um, so at, to answer your question directly, anytime that you're shorting, the gains are treated as short term. And and so uh, even if you hold a two-year leap, and maybe someday the laws will change, but I don't. I'm not waiting around for that. Uh, so it all is treated as short-term capital gains. Of course, the the holding of the security is still treated as long-term capital gains. What I've recognized, it took me a little while to realize that this was happening or possible, is that um, especially in a place like California where you have high state tax, there's a really interesting tax arbitrage that exists if you use uh, long-dated uh, covered calls as an exit strategy. And uh, a lot of times when you do long dated positions, the old, a lot of times it's just a January expiration that exists. You go out to the kind of the next year and it goes to January. And then, you know, if we waited till sort of September of next year, there'd suddenly be January 2024. So if you're out a year or two, um, when those when those are deep in the money, um, you would take a little risk of the position uh, price movement, but you end up with a... Uh, you, if you end up with a security where you've sold a call and then it's rallied, 
So you have a, you've captured a long-term capital gain on the equity, and then you have a short-term, uh, uh, sorry, and then you have a, a gain on the options, on the call options as well. Because you've you sold it actually, in the money. Because you sold it. I apologize. In the money. Because no, no, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to. You've sold it in the money, and then it's yeah. continued to rally. So you or own you it. Or you sold it out of the money, out, and it's rallied right through the strike. You've, and you've still got you've got the premium in it. Okay, so you've got two you've got two sources of gain there. You've got the premium and you've got the capital gain and the underlying. Correct. How are they treated for tax purposes? So the capital gain in your underlying position is long term if you've held it for more than a year. Right. And what's happening now is the call that you sold. Let's just say you sold a call for three dollars. The shares have rallied and now it's thirty dollars, and that's actually a loss. Right. And it's a short term loss. I see. And you can put time value into it by instead of just letting it all unwind in January together, the shares get called away from you and you've exited your position as planned. You can actually unwind that call in December. Right. And capture that whole short term loss in that tax year this year. Right. And then the next year you're you just liquidate or sell a one month call. I would still sell another call probably on the underlying security that has this long-term embedded capital gains, that then gets taxed the following year. So you take a short, a large, you know, in Cali, you're like 40 something percent tax all right off. And then you pay, you know, 20 plus state or whatever. So it's still not that low, but you pay your long-term capital gains a year later. So you get deferred, you get, you get deferral and you, and it's a, it's arbitrage, right? There's a little bit of tax arbitrage. The, the what's the timing of the so if you sell a put what's the timing so you get the premium in let's say you get the premium in January yeah is the uh, and then it expires in the following January Wh- what is the timing for tax purposes is it the at the point of sale or is it the point of expiry so uh, great question directly it's the point of expiration when the tax uh, liability occurs. And of course, then you pay the following year when you file taxes. Uh, but it's a really, it's a really interesting question because if you basically are, uh, so you, so you can plan accordingly, right? So it's it's better to have things expiring uh, in January or so. But what's right. interesting is the way the execution. I think is people often misunderstand it. So uh, you know, I was talking about you can buy a New York Stock Exchange with the Chicago Exchange. What we will do, what I will do is when we're interested in selling a contract on position, um, I've watched people try to sort of emulate what we do and they make this mistake. They're like trying to force a position through. I literally write it and leave it like a limit order sometimes for months just waiting for a flash crash or some event and they happen very quickly. So, I mean, if you've been around a while, you see every few years there's just something that has a sudden 10% swing in a bunch of stuff and a 40% swing in something you liked. So we have positions that sit there waiting to be bought from us. And uh, and that helps us immensely in getting a, a large price. So right. these option prices swing quite widely. Uh, so if you're interested at four, I might write it for 10 and it'll sit there for three months and the day it gets bought we pick up the cash and uh and i'm i'm 
always very surprised. It's a great day when somebody's buying our contracts because they're very mispriced. And uh, and at that point, just to for for your uh, viewers and listeners, it's it's interesting. We don't we don't have any IRR on that day, right? We pick up cash, and then on our fund balance sheet, we have a liability. We have an obligation to buy the shares for that price, and that obligation is a liability. And that liability, let's say we brought in a million dollars, we now have an offsetting $1 million liability on day one. And what happens is that cash doesn't change value, that's cash. What happens is the liability goes up and down with the market, and if we've done things right and it appreciates, it will asymptotically approach zero. So that liability will go to zero, and then it will expire, and we'll still have the cash. Well, that's great. I think that's that's a pretty good overview of the of the option selling. Let's let's go back to the positions a little bit. Do you want to talk about individual? Let's talk about the names and the quality of the names. I've got these. These should be fairly familiar to most folks. But uh, Daily Journal. Do you want to talk yeah. about the the opportunity yeah. in Daily Journal? Yeah. Um, and then again, I know like I've 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 spoken a little about about Daily Journal. Um, I actually really like Daily Journal. Uh, it's a Typically, I don't go through like every portfolio position, but I, I really, but I really don't mind. It's like this is a long-term Fisher compounder. Um, if anything, I'd like to bias myself not to sell it. I think that's uh, I'm more at risk of selling a good compounder than I am at not buying something of great value. Uh, so, let's see. I can start at any point with Daily Journal. Why don't I start by saying? the framework of the management and the business model and the value. So the management um, is Charlie Munger and uh, a lot of his uh, good friends, Peter Kaufman, um, um, Salzman, and a bunch of others. Unfortunately, uh, very, very sadly, uh, Rick Gurren passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, Rick uh, Rick Gurren and Charlie Munger actually bought originally the Daily Journal newspaper 43 years ago. So... um, so it was. It's sad to see him go. He's a he's a lived a great life and and uh, and uh, was a big part of the company. So so the business model everybody thinks is a newspaper and it's actually this SaaS court um, software system called eSuites. And so uh, the business model being SaaS means very low book value, very high cash flow, and they have a lot of uh, special features where they're um, do, implementing things like major deferred gratification where they're giving courts like a seven year lead time before they start billing. And, uh, and that just completely changes the dynamic where it's not showing up on the financial statements, but they certainly have many tens, hundreds of millions owed to them from municipalities and, and even countries like Australia, uh, around the world. Uh, so management is wonderful. The business model's fantastic as well. The newspaper business we just put at zero because that's not a good business model anymore. Uh, it's probably not worth zero, but it's not worth counting. And then what's very interesting is they also, you know, we talked earlier about having this sort of underlying floor uh, for security. And Daily Journal in 2009 uh Charlie and Rick Gurren went and they pushed about 50 million into, I think they bottom ticked to the day 
the financial crisis, they bought mostly Wells Fargo and U.S. Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Uh, but this equity portfolio they have has now appreciated to you know 200, and, 200 plus million dollars, and it's all part of this umbrella, which is a three hundred fifty million dollar market cap. So people are really. Uh, I don't think very many people understand what's happened in the space, in the technology space. And so that's given a, a presenter a really good opportunity. Yeah, I've I, uh, embarrassingly bought Daily Journal Co at about $70. And then I think I sold it about 95, somewhere between 2009 and 2010. Because yeah. it was, uh, it came into, it was like a, it was net net or net cash to it, to, yes. to those securities. So, uh, well, oh. it's not too late. Okay, you can still <laughs> I, look. I can I can um, share with you a couple of details and ask anything you want. And and if we get if it gets too long on Daily Journal, we can move away from it. But uh, one interesting aspect that I think people probably don't recognize at all. Um, so in if you look through their 10Ks, uh, you'll see they have this equity portfolio. But two of the securities are international securities. And so the only way to kind of figure those out is to uh, find somebody who's figured it out or to start mapping possible securities and try to identify you know, exchange rates and what, you know, what can they possibly own. And it, as it turns out, one of their big positions is BYD. And so BYD uh, just today is up another 16%. Uh, and, and I don't know where it's going, but it's suddenly become worth in excess of uh, $100 million. Just the Daily Journal a piece of it. So this is a $350 million mark cap. Uh, one of these little hidden securities happens to be BYD. Uh, and, and that's tucked in there. So people kind of, a lot of people come to me and they say, well, are you worried about the financials? Well, guess what? BYD is much larger than the financials in that portfolio. Uh, and so that creates this like, this very solid floor in my mind, where uh, if the so, so what we're looking for is true asymmetry in the risk-reward profile of these firms. And I think this fits it so well. I actually spoke about it last year in Switzerland, and I called the presentation Hiding in Plain Sight because it's, it's, so, it's right in front of everybody. I mean, it's Charlie Munger. A lot of people know about the Daily Journal meeting, attend the Daily Journal meetings. A lot of people don't own the security. Uh, and it's because nothing's very obvious, nothing's apparent, even though it's right there. And so this equity portfolio is going to grow into the current market cap of the business over today's market cap over, let's say, five years. And sure, the market cap could be below the equity portfolio of the business, but that would be pretty wrong. Right. And uh, and so I look at that as a really solid floor. You can buy in today and five years from now. If the whole SaaS business fails, you get all your money back. That seems really secure to me. On top of that, you've got these unbelievably these business minds running this software firm uh, that has potential, in my view, to at the end of this decade have about 100 to 150 million per year in revenue. And so now you have to think about how do you value SaaS and then revenues and then do you want to figure out what the cash flows would be. But if you slice it a bunch of different ways, it sort of looks like a billion dollar business. And so I look at this as you're buying something for 350, 
you may get, you'll definitely get your 350 and you might get one and a half billion or more. So um, that seems very attractive and very safe. Yeah, good good uh, risk reward profile in, in DJ Co. Run by uh, the kind of guys, and not to sleep on Peter Kaufman either because he's a business genius in there too, who not a lot of folks That's know right. about. Um, you know, there's only about three. There's only about 300 or so employees, maybe 350 employees at Daily Journal, and Charlie's been there for 43 years. So you can imagine, he's worked or maybe possibly interviewed quite a few. Or, you know, I, I think he, the culture, uh, the culture is going to be among one of the better cultures, I think, in sort of, uh, of among modern corporations. I think. Uh, I think it will be there to last far after Charlie's gone, for example. And I think that's really valuable to have sort of 300 minds that sort of understand and respect the Kaufman and Munger philosophies. Uh, do you want to talk about when you've exited Costco? Uh, sure. Well, that that was uh, so. So co- thank you. You probably picked that up from the annual uh, report. I did. There. Yeah. So. All that we sold puts and we missed, uh, we missed, you know, Costco increased and we missed, uh, we missed the opportunity to buy. And at the time, it didn't seem that terrible because Costco wasn't one of these firms that are just screaming cheap. It was just such a great business model and run by great people. And it, it was good. It was good. But actually, it's a really good example of the sort of step four where uh, we didn't buy in. And then the shares over the next sort of 18 months, I think they almost doubled, right? So um, I, th- I can't remember all the numbers you're looking at, but uh, we probably sold with strikes out 150 or so. Uh, and I think they're above 300 today. Yeah, I was just, I was just wondering what the, the reason for selling was, if it was a valuation-driven We sale. wouldn't have sold if we had been put the shares. So it would have just been a nice compounder that we would have had in our back pocket. Uh, but the shares were not put to us. The shares did not decline below our strike. Uh, so when we, I, again, I don't remember. So you the sold the call to get, and that was, that was, that was. No, we sold a put oh, I as see. a tool to enter. I but see. I still write about those in the report. You know, this was Got an it. attempt to own these, this position. We picked up the premium. We earned the, the, the adequate IRR. We didn't, and then. You know, a lot of these contracts will go out. You know, if we're writing contract today, it's very likely we're going to January 2022 at a minimum. I'd like to get through all the uncertainty if possible and maybe even 2023. So, you know, it's kind of with us for a while. And then if we don't buy the shares, we sort of we call we still call it an exit. I so see. Uh, so that was the exit. Uh, but that's exactly the scenario you described earlier where the shares rose and we didn't buy them and then they went up considerably um, in a large part due to the pandemic and a lot of other things. Got it. Uh, what about one of your private holdings? Do you want to talk about Dando? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so again, normally I don't talk about all these, but you, I, like I don't mind. It's more about the commitment and consistency biases, but you're picking uh, good opportunities. Like uh, Dando, we will hold for a really long time and um, and so let's talk about Don. What is Dondo? Uh, first of all, do you are you familiar with Dondo at all, or uh, only from speaking to you over the years? Okay. Uh, but I, I know I, I, I a little bit, but 
but let's start at the beginning. So Dondo is, it wasn't intended to remain private, but we had an opportunity to buy into a private vehicle that was being run by Manish Pabrai in 2014. And so there were shares available. Um, the idea was to kind of create a little mini Berkshire and things have pivoted a bit since then. Uh, but the shares were $10 share. Uh, it went into a business and then that was used to sort of get things up and running. Ultimately, Dondo now is like a secret in our portfolio. It's just amazing what we hold. So uh, the idea was to IPO a couple years in, which was going to sort of resolve us with this sort of painful quirk in our, in, quirk in our portfolio because it's not really a, designed to be a pri have a private entity. But we do have this. Uh, the IPO didn't happen uh, for a number of reasons. Manish bought uh, uh, an insurance company. Um, that had a little bit of trouble. We tried to tried to be moved to Puerto Rico, do a few um, interesting things, and ultimately ended up selling. But it it was the it wasn't possible really to do an IPO because there was no cash flow, and so the IPO wouldn't have been a very successful IPO. So it remained private. Ultimately, because interest rates and fixed income have been so low, it's it's hard to have a uh, really good return in a bond portfolio from a from an insurance entity. So that was sold. Uh, to Francis Chow. And uh, and ultimately, uh, to sort of, I mean, Manish calls it putting the toothpicks back in the tube. Uh, <laughs> money was spent. Uh, it didn't quite work out. But I think from here, it's going to work out quite well. So what he's done is basically, over the last few years, been distributing back some capital. So of the original 10, we've received about seven and a half. Uh, we hold it in our portfolio at book value, by the way. And what has it become? Uh, Manish has basically launched, uh, the, the largest part now is a India-focused fund, and he's raised about $100 million for that fund. So we own the fund. We're not invested in the fund. So there's a, so there's a few pieces left. The insurance company is gone. There's a little bit of an equity portfolio, and then there's basically this, this hedge fund, and there's a little- The manager? Is that, is that what you own? The What's that? Is it a manager? You own the manager? You yeah, own a part of the, the manager. The, yeah, the... We, we own the manager. I see. Yeah. So we own the business, and then the business manages the fund, Got Dondo it. Funds. Dondo Fund, uh, the main Dondo Fund is an India-focused fund. It's invested in all sorts of interesting companies over in India. It's probably going to do very well. It's been really volatile. Uh, we'll receive cash flows, I think, um, very inconsistently, but we can handle that. What's interesting is that in our portfolio, because back in the day, we needed to track it up, but we needed a way to track it. And so we determined with our auditors, the best way is to just use book value. And we received book, audited book value statements from them on a regular basis, quarterly, uh, audited annually. And so we just consistently mark our books to book value. But as you know, the book value of a hedge fund is zero. I mean, it's like a some brains in a, a computer or something. So uh, so we hold this at book value, which is the book value of the legacy stock holdings that they have. Uh, and there's, so it's, it's actually $2 a share. So we bought in for 10, we've been paid back seven and a half, and we hold it at two. So over six years, and this started a large position, and over six years, it's down in our portfolio. But in that $2, 
uh, there's a sliver. The the piece attributed to the hedge fund is actually, I believe, seven cents. So <laughs> seven cents of this position is a hundred million dollar uh, hedge fund in India, and that is growing. By the way, it's only a couple years old. So uh, so it's quite a nice position to have. Actually, I mean, I I treasure it, and I can imagine. Um, a few years from now with a few hundred million and some good years in India, uh, you can we can have some nice dividends coming from that position. But it has taken a lot of patience from a lot of people, uh, including a lot of our LPs, to understand, you know, we own this and it's a really valuable asset. Uh, just to uh, change pace a little bit, how did you get your start as an investor and how did you, how did you come to marry... Uh, the options with the more traditional sort of Buffett style value investing? Great. Yeah, great question. Uh, so my background very, very briefly, I grew up in the Midwest in, in Minnesota uh, and studied economics and math at a small liberal arts school called the University of Puget Sound, which is near Seattle. Uh, and from there, I, I basically went out to Wall Street. I, I went to China for a little while and then I went out to Wall Street. Uh, and I spent a whole bunch of years consulting for investment banks, primarily Goldman Sachs. So I was like seven years, I was kind of between London and, and New York. And um, two of them, I officially lived in London, um, doing all this stuff with Goldman. And there was a period that was very interesting for me. Uh, and it was about 2005. I was writing all these, there was this Basel too. It, I don't know, maybe it was too much information, but there's this Basel II implementation that was going on at Goldman and my team was helping with the risk management group and we were trying to justify to the SEC that Goldman was so advanced in their measurement of risk that they didn't need to abide by the SEC requirements, we could create our own requirements. And so to do that, we had to model out every product that Goldman was um, working with and I was um, one of the people responsible for creating, I was primarily responsible for creating that model validation documentation and submitting that to the SEC so that we could get approval to take on more risk, basically. And um, and I was also studying for the CFA designation at the time, and so there were a lot of things that were sort of connecting in my mind where I was recognizing, you know, you don't really need to buy. I was actually looking at different desks, trading desks at Goldman, and I was realizing that these siloed traders were netting out positions that they were taking, and it was seemed inefficient. Um, and when I brought it to like the MDs I was working with, it was sort of like uh, not a significant uh, point for them. But I recognized that you could actually make a very high RR, maybe 20% or so, just by writing puts on these things that they wanted to buy. So it was during that time that I recognized that it was really possible and I started experimenting with it myself and it was really working. And I actually did bring it to Goldman and said, you know, we should have a desk that's doing this. And we did a quick analysis where we said, what's the market size? Uh, what's the, and at that time, and I think it's grown since then, and it, certainly we were looking at only a few securities, but I was, the market size, we were saying, well, maybe we could do this with like 250 million. And then it was like, oh, so we're gonna make $50 million. <laughs> and then, you know, at Goldman, 50 million doesn't- Doesn't move the needle. <laughs> yeah, now we gotta write about it, and now we gotta get space for all these guys. So we got to pay the team, you know, the Goldman guys aren't cheap. So they said, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's 50 million. So um, during all that, it was, it was very interesting. And I realized, well, you know, I can do this. 
and I was sort of setting up the block to run my own firm anyway. But uh, but certainly that was the sort of period where I said, okay, this is going to be a this is going to be how I buy securities, and it's how I buy securities all the time. So, uh, you know, people sometimes ask, well, do you do things differently in like a PA? I mean, most of my PA is in the fund anyway, but even in my PA, I always sell puts as a tool, even if they go out a week or a month or whatever. I I don't rationally see why I wouldn't take the premium before right. moving in, and uh, and it, it's interesting. It's part of the reason the market's not that efficient because I mean, I tried to bring it to Goldman. And they said, well, it's, there's two reasons uh, that, that they leave this market for people like us. And it's that, uh, one, most of their, most prop traders, most employees have an annual review and bonus cycle. And we're looking at you know, an 18-month contract, and that's the start of a position. And so very few people are willing to have that sort of patience when they're going to be evaluated December 31st, no matter what's going on with this underlier. And then they're gonna to have to justify some s sort of strange holding that they have. So uh, part of it is the employee culture of the review and bonus cycle. And the other part is that the market is insufficient to move the needle. And so they don't participate. And that leaves this uh, space where there's a lot of inefficiencies. And I think irrationality, a lot of emotional trading, uh, people are in there on Robin Hood. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, so that was sort of a lot of that background. Um, and then in, let's see, December, uh, around December 2010, uh, I left, left my consulting firm, I left Goldman, and I basically was, my fund was set up. We were getting ready to launch in 2011. And we did a little analysis where we wanted to live and ended up moving out to, uh, to the West Coast and setting up in Los Angeles. And we spent nine years there. So that's kind of the very brief, background how, how did you discover the uh the value side though how was the how did that come about the value side was so much ingrained in me i i don't know when that moment was if that makes sense was it so, a parent or a grandparent who was certainly uh my parents are i think generally very value oriented and just frugal in nature my father's an attorney my mom's a pharmacist and uh, but just, you know, uh, the way that they handled their, uh, assets and money, it, it was very much a value based sort of framework, if you will. So I sort of always knew I wasn't going to overpay for anything. And, um, I, I grew up at a young age doing very interesting entrepreneurial type jobs. I, I set up a can recycling thing in my father's law firm at you know when I was nine or something and I'd get five cents a can and then I quickly had 500 bucks and I realized I had enough to start buying CDs at the bank rather than just getting the interest and then I started trading the CDs and I was like 12 trying to do it without my parents and the bankers were getting frustrated with me because uh, I cared about three dollars and they didn't have the time to deal with it or whatever but uh, so it was always very much part of who I was uh, I first I remember uh, very clearly I was riding a train in New York in 2003 and I was trying to tell my good friend that he should be buying Berkshire Hathaway stock. And, uh, and he was, and then he brought up the annual meeting and I, I had never been and it occurred to me I could just go. So uh, I think it was April 2004 was the first time I went to the Berkshire annual meeting 
And, uh, and that was a really great life-changing experience. I, I've been, other than the two years I lived in London, I've been every year since. Some of my best friends come with me. Uh, a few of my current best friends I met at the Berkshire meeting. So uh, certainly that was, uh, that was a big piece of it. Well, that's great. Um, we're coming up on time, Matt. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, great. Uh, there's a lot of information on my website at uh, petersonfunds.com. Uh, and, you know, folks can email me if they want to talk further. It's matthew.peterson at petersonfunds.com. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm happy to, happy to speak with folks about any of these topics and more. Oh, that's fantastic. Matt Peterson, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. It's a pleasure. <laughs>